0: Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha
1: Mountshute. And I'm Coach John Shuup.
0: John's coached at the highest levels of the game of
1: football for 26 years. And Marcia is an author, theologian, and minister.
0: And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time.
1: On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels.
2: Welcome to Going Deep's annual Super Bowl episode. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the show. John Shoup, our co-host, is joining me here today. Now, this episode, uh, in full transparency, as we like to do on public radio, is going to come to you in pieces because we had recorded something earlier um that was ready to air for this show and then tuesday february 1st 2022 something happened that really might change uh, the nfl and professional football uh, forever and that was the finally a lawsuit by former miami dolphins head coach brian flores so we are recording this part after we recorded the original part so you're going to hear some of the original stuff we recorded after you hear what we're recording here today john is here joining me there will be more to talk about this as uh, Marsha, our other co-host, is unable to join us today. She's dealing with some family things, and I uh, join our listeners in keeping her in our mind as she goes through that. So there's so much to talk about with this lawsuit from Brian Flores. John, this is really just an opening conversation about it, is it?
1: Well, it, it really is. There's so much to go into this. So to kind of uh, set the stage, the the NFL has something that is called the Rooney Rule. And basically, the Rooney Rule says – that every team that has an open head coaching position uh, must interview at least one black candidate for that position. Now, some have argued justifiably, I believe, that many of these interviews are simply checking a box and the candidate is not seriously considered. Others have argued, perhaps with merit, that the experience of the interview can still be beneficial and is maybe preparing a larger pool of candidates uh, down the road. Now, the problem with that take is that in 2018, there were seven black head coaches in the NFL. As we're recording this today, presently, there's one. And so it seems as if the effect is the Rooney rule is not having uh, its intended effect. Uh, Statistically, seven to one is, well, it's really terrible. Uh, I will argue that there is a growing pool of candidates. I think there's some wonderful, wonderful candidates uh, 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 that are people of color to serve as head coaches in the NFL, just where we sit right now, son of a gun, they haven't they haven't gotten the
2: jobs, and uh, it is a head scratcher indeed. So let's get into the context of this lawsuit. Brian Flores was the coach of the Miami Dolphins for the last three years, and they think a good t- term to describe the Dolphins really this entire century has been moribund. They had not had back to back. A non-losing seasons until the last two years with Brian Flores as our head coach. He was fired after this most current season, and the Dolphins have still not hired his replacement yet. He was interviewing for another job. He was interviewing for the New York Giants job, which was open. And through a scenario that we're going to talk about here in a bit, which is just laughably absurd, comical, I think you said, this is always the proof that truth is much funnier and stranger than fiction, (laughs) Um, found out that they had already hired their new head coach, Brian Debel, and had not... They were, as you put it earlier, explaining the Rooney rule, this interview may really seem like just checking the box that they were following the Rooney rule. And he's saying that there has long been racist policies, institutional racism, and systemic racism in the NFL that is preventing uh, black men from becoming head coaches. So you read the lawsuit. I read the lawsuit. So let's go over that a little bit right now. You read the lawsuit. What things stand out to you right now? Well, there's three accusations
1: that... I think, are really significant and uh, severe. Uh, The first accusation is actually against the Denver Broncos uh, from the hiring cycle in 2019, the year that Brian was actually hired uh, by the Miami Dolphins. Uh, Brian Flores claims that he interviewed with the Denver Broncos at a hotel in New Jersey and that uh, the general, the then general manager of the Broncos, uh, was John Elway, the Hall of Fame quarterback. And that John Elway and another executive came to the meeting ninety minutes late and appeared to be uh, hungover. Now, this meeting went on for uh, three and a half to four hours, and there were Denver Broncos executives there, uh, but again, John Elway being a primary decision maker in showing up so late made, it seems, Brian Flores really feel in, in his language as if the Broncos were just checking a box of we're meeting the requirements of the Rooney rule. And they went on to hire Vic Fangio uh, to be their head coach, who, by the way, they fired this year as well. But Vic was a capable and qualified candidate. But Vic was is white. Uh, The second accusation in this goes against the New York Giants, and that's in this year's hiring cycle. In fact, just last week. And as you said, parts of it are comical. So Brian Dable is uh, the coach who ultimately got the job as head football coach of the New York Giants. Uh, this really isn't a surprise to people. Brian Daybowl had been the offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills. And a few days before Daybowl was hired, uh, the New York Giants hired the assistant general manager from the Buffalo Bills to be the general manager. So this previous connection made people think that this hire would be logical, but Here's where it gets crazy. Uh, Brian Flores and Brian Dable both uh, used to coach for the New England Patriots under Bill Belichick and Bill Belichick was texting with Brian Flores. And Bill Belichick thought that he was texting with Brian Dable and uh, you can read the exact texts on, on uh, the internet, but it was something to the effect of I've talked to everybody, you're their guy, uh, uh, congratulations. And Brian Flores texted back, That's great, <laughs> I'm so excited. And as it went, he was like, Hold on a second, D- which Brian are you talking about? And Bill Belichick was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was texting Brian Dayball and uh, this was two days before Brian Flores' interview with the Giants. And so he did go take part in that interview, um, but this is a legitimate accusation that it seems the Giants had already made their decision. And again, we're just trying to check that Rooney rule box again. I think Brian Dable is a qualified candidate. I see the connection uh, with uh, the Buffalo Bill's uh, background. But again, it proves the or, or it leads to the fact that this Rooney rule is just not working how
2: people hope. And-, and we can show that we will leave the link to the lawsuit in the description of the show page. You can see the text message exchange. It's there in the lawsuit. John cleaned up the language of when Bill Belichick found out he was texting with the wrong Brian. And I mean, there is this level of just gallows humor with it. It feels like it should be in, you know, succession or veep or something uh, this whole thing might have come down to Bill Belichick accidentally texting the wrong Brian. D and F are next to each other in the alphabet. You can probably see it in in, in maybe in your own uh, phone, you know, phone contacts and all that, that you would have people there next to it. And he just clicked the wrong one and kind of blew up At at least according to the lawsuit, the accusations made into it that Brian Flores' interview with the Giants was a sham, was just a courtesy interview, a token interview, because they'd already made their decision. The third accusation is. With the Miami Dolphins, the team he was employed by, was fired uh, fired by after this most current season. But for the first time, he had put together back-to-back seasons where they did not have uh, a losing record. And that's the first time that it happened since 2003. So take us through the accusations made against the Dolphins, his employer at the time, that uh, he presents in this lawsuit.
1: Yeah, so to put this in perspective, I mean – as a veteran NFL coach, I, I was shocked when Brian Flores, uh, was fired, uh, after this season, in his first year there, the 2019 season, the dolphins went five and 11 with probably the worst roster in the entire league. It was really good to go five and 11. And then he went 10 and six and nine and eight, two consecutive winning seasons, uh, this is really hard to do, and uh, he's doing it with a roster that's improving, but certainly not uh, sensational. Now, the accusation – and so everybody was shocked that he was uh, fired. The accusations that he is making is that in his first season, where he went 5-11, and 11, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, a man named Stephen Ross – offered him $100,000 per game that he uh, would lose to tank. He was offering them money to tank. Now, why would an owner want to tank uh, to get a higher draft pick? Uh, That year, the Miami Dolphins ended up drafting Tua out of uh, the University of Alabama. Well, as we can all see right now in that same year, Joe Burrow, was the number one pick of that uh, draft. And Joe Burrow has since led the Cincinnati Bengals uh, to the Super Bowl this year. And so the incentive for the Dolphins to tank to get to that pick to get uh, Joe Burrow, well – we can all see how much Joe Burrow has uh, changed uh, the franchise in Cincinnati in a very short period of time. If Stephen Ross was asking Brian Flores to do that, to tank games and offering him money to do that, that to me in all of this, as bad as the other things are, that to me is as damaging and serious uh, of an accusation is any uh, uh, professional sports league, any sports league at all uh, could have. And uh, that will be really uh, interesting to see how that unfolds and what repercussions come.
2: Well, there is that. And again, we will have a link to the lawsuits that you can read. And I certainly um, ask our listeners to read it. There is so much in it. After these accusations are listed at the beginning of it, they really go through where the in, uh, the institutional and systemic racism in the NFL has always been. And it goes back to the founding of the league, how long it took for Black players to, to be integrated into the league. After World War II, when they had been playing in the league prior to the war, some other history about when the first head coach, how long it took for the first head coach, how long it took for uh, the first black general manager, and all that. It seems like in this particular suit that Brian Flores really wants a lot of information out. And he has said in a statement, hey, he knows he might be sabotaging his ability to coach in the NFL again. It feels like he wants a lot of information to come out. He wants us doing what we're doing right now, talking about this and showcasing the racism that exists in the league. Um, where does this go? I guess as you look at it, where does it go? I mean, what the league is very rich. It's paid people off uh, on lawsuits to, 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 to quiet down so a lot of information doesn't come out. Where does the lawsuit, I guess – you're not a lawyer, neither am I, so we can't speak about it in that way. But how much of this right now really is a threat to the NFL and how it does business? If a lot of the information that he's trying to bring out here, because of the stuff that's listed in the lawsuit of the systemic racism, that's all public knowledge. Maybe not to the general public; everybody doesn't know it. But that's all been stuff that people have known. Um, how damaging to the NFL can this be if more of this comes out? Well, I don't know for sure.
1: think that it can be damaging, Uh, but anybody who has watched the last two weeks of football knows how exhilarating and how popular and how entertaining uh, this game is. I think that it can take a hit and will take a hit, and I hope that some more meaningful steps are going to be taken to move towards equity in this league. We're talking about a league where 70% of the athletes uh, are Black, yet there's only one uh, Black head coach in the league. Uh, So I hope that steps are taken. I hope that this moves the needle in that direction Um, But I've been hopeful before, and I've been disappointed before. Maybe the only thing that I know is there's going to be some lawyers getting some billable hours going. And there's going to be people that continue to watch the NFL because it really is as exciting and
2: exhilarating of a professional sports league as there is. You mentioned the 70% of the athletes in the NFL are black. In the beginning of the lawsuit, it it mentions that it says the NFL is following the plantation system, that 70% of the athletes are black in the league. There's one black head coach. There are now seven black general managers, but there is not one black owner, certainly not a majority black ownership group that owns a team in the NFL. The plantation um, description was also used for college sports. You were in a documentary a few years back that, use that description too when talking about major college sports as well when you hear the word plantation you see this written in that lawsuit what what comes to your mind yeah usually when i hear the description of the plantation
1: model i think more of the co- collegiate model prior to players having uh, their name image and likeness uh, uh, rights which they've recently gained In the NFL, it's interesting. The players have a very, very strong union. And 70% of the players, as you said, are people of color. The coaches do not have a union. And early in my NFL career, in the late 90s, the coaches actually tried to form a union and it was such a cutthroat group of men that uh, they couldn't gain uh, 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 allegiance to it. And so coaches have no union. And I think that in some ways that can make it more difficult to fight this battle uh, from a coaching standpoint. Again, I'm not an attorney. I'm certainly not a labor attorney. Uh, But I do think we'll see some coaches uh, that back Brian Flores, and I think we'll see some coaches that aren't going to get anywhere near near, uh, those accusations because um, they don't want to compromise their position with uh, ownership.
2: So this won't be the only time we're talking about this on Going Deep. This was just an introductory uh, conversation to this, and we certainly want to hear Marcia's thoughts about this too and how she is so adept, as our listeners know it, at uh, taking these issues and really broadening them out to American society. But we will now go to the, after this short break, we will now go to uh, the show that we recorded before the lawsuit came out on February 1st. Thanks for listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studio's Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the program. Now we're going to go back to the part of the episode that we recorded earlier prior to Brian Flores' lawsuit. We are at the end of the NFL's longest season, the first time it's gone to 17 games this year. Uh, Maybe it's best playoff season ever. The last six games, all four divisional playoff games were decided on the final play, the two conference championship games decided by just a field goal, one going into overtime. Given that we're just in a COVID-beleaguered world and a COVID-beleaguered country, these playoffs have been a pretty nice, uh, maybe just a nice uh, addition for us to our lives to have something that really kind of illuminates why we like sports, right?
1: Well, speak for yourself. I think in the divisional round where they had four games, I had four different runs of tachycardia. I I nearly had a heart attack four different times. So it wasn't that relaxing. Now, the the championship round this past week was sure exciting, and it came down to three points each game, but it wasn't quite as heart-stopping as the previous week. I mean... What a gift. If you're a football nut and if you can sit in a chair for six, eight, 12 hours straight for two days in a row, I mean, son of a gun, there's been some of the best football I've ever seen uh, played over the past two weekends that's for sure
2: but you know this was a, a, an absolutely amazing playoff season we have some new blood in the super bowl with the cincinnati bengals and joe burrow will be the f- attempt to be the first player to win the heisman a national ch- first quarterback to win the heisman a national championship and a super bowl i believe that is uh the run that's quote, right yeah uh, against the los angeles rams who will be playing at home they've obviously uh Did a big makeover from their last time they were in the Super Bowl three years ago, most notably getting Matthew Stafford, a long-suffering player for the Detroit Lions now at the quarterback of the Rams. So um, the new blood that's really kind of coming into the sport right now, when you watch it, when you see it, the the, the way the game is being played now with these newer quarterbacks— What does it say to you? What does it speak to you about the sport? Because you've gone through in previous episodes about how football, in particular, sort of mimics parts of American society, how it is played even on the offensive side. So when you see it like this right now, what really strikes you about it?
1: Well, when you talk about new blood in the NFL, I mean, it really starts with uh, Patrick Mahomes, who's 26 years old and the quarterback for the Chiefs. Josh Allen, who's 25 years old, and the quarterback for the Bills. Lamar Jackson, 25 years old, and the quarterback for the Ravens. Justin Herbert, at age 23, is the quarterback for the Chargers. And Kyler Murray, at age 24, is the quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals. I mean, these guys are really leading the charge in replacing guys like, uh, you know, Eli Manning, Philip Rivers, Drew Brees, Ben Roethlisberger, Tom Brady, who were in their late 30s, 40s. And what these guys do, passing the ball, is really unbelievable. I mean, just in the last six to seven years, I think uh, the passing game in the NFL has evolved in ways that it certainly never was while I was – in the, in the NFL, calling games, and there's a couple of things that I think it's alludes to. One, people, the fans, me, you, we love watching offensive football. We love watching quarterbacks throw for 400 yards, 5,000 yards in a season, 40 touchdowns in a season. We love watching teams put up these big, big numbers, and. The NFL has really made the rules in such that, boy, defenses are at such a disadvantage now. I mean, you can barely touch a receiver without getting a a pass interference call. Uh, There's not the same threat of being hit hard over the middle uh, as a receiver that you once were. And quarterbacks are protected in the pocket uh, a lot more than they were just even five or six years ago, and uh, I think those are all good things because they also contribute to making the game safer. Son of a gun, I'm not sure I'd want to be a defensive coordinator in the game of football right now because every rule that is made is made to enhance offensive production.
2: I want to get back to the safety issue you brought up there, which I think is very good, but just a bit in the history too. And again, tying back and I, Encourage our listeners to go back and listen to the shows you did with Randall Ballmer about how uh, offense in the NFL, uh, through its history, sort of mimicked how military wars are fought in or American the American military fights wars. Um, I don't know if we're able to really tie that into the way the passing game has evolved and all that, but you're saying the rules have really gone against the defense in recent years. But hasn't that always been the case in the NFL? that the defense seems to be punished with rules, go back to the 70s and the Mel Blunt rule, uh, as Pittsburghers as we are, Uh, doesn't that always seem to go that the offense seems to be the beneficiary of new rules in the NFL?
1: I think that the offense has traditionally been the beneficiary of the new rules, and quarterbacks have been as well. Uh, Part of the reason is because quarterbacks are – most often the highest paid player on the team and so the whole league not just a team is invested in this quarterback these quarterbacks uh performing uh at such a high level in the league to me has really become teams that have an elite quarterback and teams that don't have an elite quarterback and if you don't have an elite quarterback, and I I really mean like Patrick Mahomes, Stafford, Joe Burrow, you know, these guys, it's hard to overcome uh, uh, that. It would be like, uh, if you compare it to baseball, uh, like the Green Bay Packers with Aaron Rodgers got to pitch every game that they played with uh, Max Scherzer, you know, or, or a Cy Young type of pitcher. If you do that, man, you have a chance every single night, whereas, you know, there's half of the league that, you know, to be one of the top 32 quarterbacks in the world, you're a fantastic player, but I'm telling you, there's 10 quarterbacks or so that really have separated themselves from the other group. And, uh, boy, it just makes for sensational viewing. It really does. It makes for sensational viewing and I'd be lying if I said I, you know, I I, I enjoy it too, son of a gun.
2: As an offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that the offense has been the beneficiary of rules changes throughout uh, th- throughout the NFL's uh, history. And just to Patrick Mahomes, just to wrap this up, uh, he, he is even though he's not playing in the Super Bowl this week, and he seems to be the player that really is kind of the the number one in the NFL right now. I think the figurehead of the league as far as players, and certainly as far as the way the game is being played. And one thing I do just to get your perspective on this is that you know, his father Patrick Mahomes was there. Pat Mahomes was a baseball pitcher um he plays and throws very much like a baseball player does he not i mean because there's a lot of sidearm stuff there's a lot of things thrown from different angles that baseball pitchers have to do whereas i'm sure football quarterbacks throwing is a bit of a different game right
1: yeah patrick mahomes who's the quarterback for the chiefs really is unorthodox um You know, he throws the ball from so many different angles. Sometimes when he's playing quarterback, uh, I feel like he's a a point guard who's uh, passing the ball like Magic Johnson. I mean, this is an NFL quarterback that's literally sometimes making no look passes and uh, having to drop it sidearm or submarine to get it around a defender's. uh uh, arms that are reaching out trying to uh, bat it down and so you're right he throws the ball a lot like a middle infielder who's able to adjust in from a lot of different positions but i also see like a point guard in basketball and interestingly enough he was a he patrick mahomes too was a wonderful wonderful baseball player in high school and you know Many of the young quarterbacks uh, that we talked about, whether it's Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, these guys were all multi-sport athletes. Kyler Murray, he was the number one draft pick of the Oakland A's. These guys were all multi-sport athletes in high school. And one of the things that, I don't know if our country's doing this or the whole world's doing this right now, but people try to get – uh too specific, maybe too soon in their careers, which can lead to injury, can lead to burnout, can lead to uh, to a lot of things. But one thing every one of these quarterbacks has, this, this new breed, this 26 and under who are sensational, they have what I call ball and stick sense. And you only develop ball and stick sense by playing sports. And, you know, I tell quarterbacks all the time, you know, shooting a basketball is directly correlated to being an accurate passer. I have never met a quarterback that was an accurate passer that could not also shoot baskets. You know, Drew Brees, who was uh, uh, the first ballot Hall of Fame inductee, was a junior national uh, tennis player. Played in junior Wimbledon as a tennis player. And as a quarterback, we talk a lot about short area quickness in the pocket. Just being able to find that safe spot in the pocket. You know, being athletic is not always running a 4-3 yard dash. Sometimes it's just being quick. Sometimes it's just being able to throw the ball from unusual positions. And in my opinion, the most underrated Uh, 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 aspect of quarterbacking and maybe the most under-evaluated position is anticipation. Uh, Quarterbacks, things happen so fast out there. Holy moly. If you think it's fast on TV, go sit on the sidelines sometimes and see how fast these people are moving. And you have to have this unreal anticipation and an athletic anticipation. And you see it with, uh, batters in the batter's box. I mean, it's not that the ball can be halfway to the plate and you decide what kind of pitch it is. There's cues that you pick up on just through playing sports your entire life. There's cues that you pick on that help you with this sense of anticipation. And these anticipatory cues athletes pick up on them whether it's in basketball whether it's in baseball whether it's in tennis whether it's in uh, being a quarterback in the pocket and it's a tough thing to evaluate but boy these guys just that's all part of ball and stick sense and these guys have it they really do
2: heard both you and Marcia talk about this a lot of how specialization in youth sports is really harmful why did we get to this point where I think where the specialization really started in youth sports and you know people play the same sport all year round or they don't play as many other sports as as they might and they really just focus on one where did this really begin to happen and why do you think it did i mean you, you you recruited players and I guess what 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 started the the, the craze of specialization in youth sports and and I don't know, how, how does it get reversed and I guess how does it get reversed or how do we view it differently or how do parents begin to view things differently to let their children play other things in August of
1: 2021 Marsha and I had the privilege of visiting with John Solomon on going deep. Uh, who uh, works for the Aspen Institute. And really, his work deals with youth sports. And this was a topic that we talked about. And one of the things uh, that's kind of hooking students, uh, or, or hooking, uh, young children earlier are these, uh, travel sports and these travel sports are making decisions sometimes on youngsters as, as young as six, seven, eight years old, uh, uh, and, um, on, on whether they can make this team or not when really At the ages of six, seven, eight, I mean, all the way through puberty, you should just be playing as many sports as you can. And I've always told, since I've been a high school coach and and I teach at AC Reynolds and have also coached some at AC Reynolds, one thing that I've learned is, and I believe it now more than ever, don't ever evaluate an athlete before they've gone through puberty because... (laughs) children go through it at different ages. And I'm convinced that in America, we're siphoning off uh, some kids who would be just wonderful athletes because they didn't grow as fast as uh, some kids did. And at age 9, 10, 11, 12, those other kids are just uh, super big. And so they make the team. And it does two things. One, it kind of calls the herd in terms of, you know, who can play sports and who can't, if you get cut from a team at age six, seven or eight, chances are you might be done with that sport, you know? And, uh, the other thing is these travel teams, you know, when I grew up in the seventies and the eighties, I'm old enough now that I use that expression when I grew up, right. Uh, you know, I never stayed in a hotel for an athletic contest until I went to college. Think about that. I never stayed in a hotel for an athletic contest until I went to college. My daughter was doing it at age seven for soccer. And that was crazy to us. And she ended up quitting soccer because the coach wanted her to just focus on soccer and she played football or she played, uh, uh, she ran cross country, played basketball and softball all through middle school and decided to focus more once she got to to high school. But I think it calls the herd a little bit too early and these travel, uh, uh, teams cost a lot of money. And so there's, uh, 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 young athletes that don't have the money to join those travel teams as uh, well. And so they just don't play. And then maybe the third thing is if we're being honest with ourselves, kids have a lot more things that they can do today, uh, than kids did even just a, a generation or two ago. I mean, when I grew up, there were only three channels on the TV, you know? And so, We were outside playing wiffle ball every night, playing basketball every night. Uh, now it's unlimited, uh, what, what young people can do. And there's good things about that. Don't get me wrong. This isn't me just screaming to get off my lawn, but it is a reason why there's not as many people participating in sports and they're participating in other things, esports for one, but, uh. I think it's a really interesting dynamic and I'm, I'm worried, especially for the game of football. You know, if you look at the game of football to practice safely and to be a good team, you have to have some numbers uh, because if you don't have numbers, uh, the cumulative effect of just banging heads against one another can really wear on you by the, by the end of the season. And so if if you have numbers uh, kind of that exertion is spread out among more people. You can practice better. You can stay healthier. You can be a fresher. And numbers in high school football right now are just down so low. When when I would go to, I, I, I help out some at AC Reynolds. Uh, but when I would be at AC Reynolds, their numbers are lower. But sometimes too, I'd look across the way in a varsity football game, I would count the players on the other side that were dressed for the game. And there were a number of times I counted 21, 23, 24 players. And just a generation ago, that number was 50, 55, uh, 60. And That is really going to be part of football's problem. That is part of football's problem, I think. Their numbers are getting so low, and the cumulative effect of the people that are still there then uh, uh, creates some wear.
2: You're listening to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the program, joined by one of the hosts, John Shoup. Marcia is out on this episode. She'll be back for our next one next month. Urban Meyer, we didn't get to really talk about it too much in our Super Bowl episode last year, but I know we had talked about it as one of the topics and to talk about whether or not we thought he would succeed and we both Agreed, no, he didn't. I'm not sure we thought it would have been as fast as it happened in Jacksonville and the way it happened where it came out that he hit one of his players. So, we're going to play a little later in the episode of this episode, uh, an episode that we recorded in July of 2019, where you talked about the differences between coaching and the pros in college and which one's more difficult. And you said by far it's the pros. But one thing you said in college, the coaches have so much control, they have total control. Whereas in the pros, the players really have the control as seen from the coaching staff and all that. So let's first talk to this, why someone like Urban Meyer becomes attractive to an NFL team, even though it's shown college coaches, even ones who are very, very su- successful in college, aren't good in the NFL. Only three have won national championships at both, and we talked about that in the episode two, and you said each was a very specific case, unlikely to be repeated.
1: Well, think about that. I, I sometimes tell people, think about this. Nick Saban in college is maybe not even arguably the greatest college coach of all time, statistically speaking, right? Uh, I mean, he's won, what is it now? Seven national championships at Alabama. So just enormous success. Understand this listeners in the NFL, Nick Saban was 17 in 19 and run out of the league. Uh, He couldn't stay. And Part of the reason is this, and I I think Coach Saban's a a fine coach. I I, I really do. But part of it is this. In the NFL, you're dealing with men. You're dealing with men who, uh, I'm not saying you have to negotiate with them or you have to persuade them, but you have to show them uh, the why of things. Uh, It's not just uh, soldiers that will do whatever you tell them to do. You have to show them that, uh, uh, hey, you understand how difficult this is. You understand what you're asking them to do. And here's why this is important to us uh, winning. Their careers are depending on it. In college, uh, really, uh, the head coach is, for all intents and purposes, can be, if he chooses to be, like a dictator. Not all are like that, but it, they, they really can be. And when I realized, you know, I, I, I don't, I never, I, I knew Urban a little bit, but I remember when I was coaching in college, I had left the NFL and gone to North Carolina and Florida was doing well. At this point, Urban Meyer was the head coach at Florida. And they were doing well, and they had Tim Tebow as uh, their quarterback. Tim had just won the Heisman Trophy, and they were kind of on the cutting edge of some stuff scheme-wise that wasn't being done in the NFL, but, you know, this running quarterback. And so they just hired – Dan Mullen was the offensive coordinator, and he left to go to Mississippi State. And so they just hired a good friend of mine, a guy named Scott Leffler, to be their quarterback's coach at Florida. And so one of the neat things about college football is in the spring stabs go visit one another and they spend time talking football and they try to learn the game from one another. Well, I called Scott Leffler down to Florida and said, you know, I'd like to come visit what you guys are doing with Tim Tebow was something I don't know that we can do, but I certainly want to know about it. He said, I got to talk to our head coach and all that stuff and, and get, but for all intents and purposes, everything got green-lighted. Everything was green-lighted. And so I go down to visit. North Carolina pays for me to go down to visit. And I spend the morning talking, you know, with Scott. Scott's got to go into a meeting a few times, and then he comes back. We visit some more. He goes into a meeting. You know, I'm watching film on my own. But he says to me, uh, our quarterback meeting starts at, I can't remember exactly, you know, 2.30. Make sure you're in our quarterback meeting at 2.30, okay? Uh, uh, So you can look at our install. And so I'm sitting in the quarterback meeting, invited by the quarterback's coach. And I've already, you know, said good morning to Urban Meyer that day and stuff like that, but I wasn't spending time with him at all. Uh, And I'm in the meeting, and there's all the quarterbacks there, including Tim Tebow, and we're probably 20 minutes into the meeting. Uh, When Urban Meyer comes storming through the door, I mean, he looks like Kramer coming into Seinfeld's room, you know, the way he comes into the door. And uh, again, I just met Urban that morning. I didn't know him at all. And, uh, you know, at this point, I was a pretty seasoned coach. I mean, I'd been in the NFL for 12 years. I'd seen fire. I'd seen rain. We were pretty good at Carolina. I mean, uh, you know, I I I was seasoned. And he comes bursting in and in front of everybody, he just points at me and he says, you out of the meeting. And I looked at Leffler, and I almost said something, but I didn't want to get my friend in trouble. I remember I picked up my stuff and it was like a walk of shame almost, (laughs) you know, through the meeting room and then out the door. And then I just went and waited out in the lobby. As soon as the meeting was over, you know, Leffler came out and said, I'm so sorry that happened. You were green lighted to be in everything. I don't know why he did that. I don't. And I just remember thinking to myself that could have been handled so differently. This is a man who doesn't understand the nuance of relationships in my mind. He's allowed to change his mind. He's allowed to say, you know, I've thought about it and I don't want you in the meeting room. He's allowed to ask me to leave. But to come in and do it like he did, I reflected on that incident whenever he was hired by the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I remember I even told Marcia, I said, I just don't see that working. You know, that's not how that league works it it's not how life works <laughs> to tell
2: you you know right so what happened here uh, of the many things he only lasted 13 games and as he was being fired as this was coming down uh, one of their former kickers Josh Lambeau said Meyer kicked him repeatedly during warm-ups during the f- team's final preseason game and I quote and I'll beep this Lambeau said, Meyer responded after he said, please don't kick me. Meyer responded, according to Josh Lambeau, I'm the head ball coach. I'll kick you whenever the I want.
1: Some of these coaches in college that truly rule like dictators are so highly regarded and they're successful. And let me be clear. There's some college coaches that I I love to death and and deeply respect. But I remember thinking, you know, and this was uh, Early in Urban's career at Florida, I remember thinking, what a small person, what what a small person. And that's not a leader, which came out as well, you know, when, you know, there's videos of him dancing with young 20 year old women, you know, and he's married with, you know, and the people he's dancing with are are younger than his daughter. So there's a lot of reasons, but maybe I just saw some foreshadowing, you know, uh, what it is now, probably 20 years
2: ago. We're now going to share a bit of a show we did in July of 2019, where uh, John and Marcia talked about the differences, coaching in the pros and in college, the differences. Certainly so much of it really came down to power dynamics. So we're going to share a bit of this uh, show with you right now, and then we'll come back to close out this episode of Going Deep.
1: I thought it was a lot more difficult to win in professional football than in college. Monumentally more difficult. Perhaps the primary difference to me is endurance. When you get into the NFL, you have got to have mental, physical, spiritual endurance. That season is so long. And we used to joke the college coaches, even if it was an assistant on our staff, once Thanksgiving rolled around, these guys were ready to mail it in. These guys thought the season was over. These guys wanted to get on a plane and go recruiting. And really, we, you know, in the NFL, you remember December. Uh, December is the season, is the last quarter of the season when everything happens. And that's when a lot of college coaches when they first make that jump don't have that sense of endurance the other thing that separates college and the NFL is this is the analogy I make college while there's coaches that are hyper organized college is more like playing jazz music people show up you kinda set you kinda set a tempo and people kinda fall into that tempo the NFL is like an elite symphony. If there's one missed note, you lose the game. And everybody is so fine-tuned.
0: I do think part of of what is different and why some people just can't get much traction in the NFL is is the power dynamic with the players. And somebody like a Nick Saban who's used to really being the general, the the person who you know can just yell at players and they'll do what he says. Um, that doesn't work real well in the NFL because <laughs> I mean those guys are are getting paid sometimes more than you, and and everybody is pretty much really professional. Um, and I know there are coaches in the NFL that are yellers and screamers, but generally that's not what really creates um an atmosphere in the nfl of a winning season because like john said it's so long and you're so tired and everybody's a commodity and they know it there's no there's no facade in the nfl it's a business so i i mean the head coaches that we know who've been very successful in the nfl and college are professionals they they behave like professionals wouldn't you say
1: definitely in fact a couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference um, g- giving a talk, and another person who was given a c- talk was an assistant coach with the Charlotte Hornets in the NBA basketball. And he and I were visiting after, and I th- just found his talk fascinating and how they, you know, drill players and players work to get better. When someone came up to him and said – you know it must be great to coach in the nba those guys are amazing athletes and you just roll out the ball and let them play and i thought to myself nothing could be further from the truth in the nfl and as i see it in the nba players don't get there unless they want to be coached on everything the hardest working players i've ever been around are the best players and to get in the NFL and to get in the NBA, there's more coaching with regards to technique, with regards to scheme, with regards to uh, time management in the game in one drive or one trip down the court than there is in an entire game in college. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. I, in fact, I can remember uh, my first game in college football uh when I went to the University of North Carolina, we scored a touchdown on the third play of the game, and I thought to myself, this is so easy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're back here on Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century, our annual Super Bowl episode. John Shoup, one of the co-hosts, joining us here today. As we roll out, we have two things we do want to address before we finish out the show. One will be our predictions for the game between the Rams and the Bengals. We'll, as always, save that for the end of the Super Bowl episode. But something else is very unique about this particular year, and that is the Winter Olympics will be starting and going on while the Super Bowl is, is taking place. And since NBC broadcasts the Winter Olympics and the Super Bowl this year, they actually have to interrupt their Winter Olympics coverage to bring the biggest sporting event in in, in the United States. So um, we were just talking about the Olympics last year because the summer ones just got delayed uh, to last summer. And just a scant, how many ever months now, six, eight months later, we're back with talking Olympics, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we, you know, one of my favorite shows that we've done in the past year was with this Olympic historian, a guy named Dave, David Walachinsky. Now, he's attended 19 different Olympics, and he's wrote like the almanac for uh, Summer and Winter Olympics. This guy told, if you go back and listen to that show, he told some of the greatest stories you'll ever uh, hear on some of these Olympic athletes. And I just, in, interestingly, I just got an email today from David Walachinsky, and he said he is not Going to the Olympics uh, this winter in China. And uh, the reason he gave is, in his words, because of, and I quote, Xi Jinping and his thugs, end of quote. That's why he's not going. And so uh, if you're into the Olympics, though, and do want to get into the Olympic spirit, boy, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that episode with David He He knocked my socks off. And if you like sports, he'll probably knock yours off,
2: too. Well, we get to the final time here, and that is our predictions for the game this year. It'll just be you and me now. Before we go into this, John and I both must, uh, you know, disclose this. I guess, and you know, in public radio—we're very big about being transparent. He and I are both from the city of Pittsburgh, and uh, we both still have family living up there. So, us even picking, much less maybe even rooting for a divisional rival of the Steelers, will be difficult. So it's really going to come down to, uh, you know, this year's prediction, more than maybe any of the others, will really test us and who we think is going to win this game. So Rams-Bengals, you have the long-suffering franchise uh, the Bengals, you known where we grew up as the Bungles, <laughs> versus one of the longest-suffering players, certainly in the NFL, and Matthew Stafford, who played for you know a decade in Detroit and toiled very anonymously, gets it to L.A. in his first season, has them in the Super Bowl, where they're playing at home in Los Angeles. So you look at the game, what do you think? Well,
1: I, I kind of look at the game with my head, and then I kind of feel it with my heart. My heart wants the Bengals to win, and that, that's hard for me to say, having grown up in Pittsburgh. But I've fallen in love with their quarterback, the uh, Joe Burrow. And as you said at the top of the show, he's got a chance to be the first quarterback ever to win the Heisman Trophy, National Championship, and uh, uh, an NFL championship, and he's only in his second year. Now, this is only the second time in the history of the NFL as well that two number one draft pick quarterbacks, I mean first pick overall in the draft, are going to face each other. Matthew Stafford was the, number, the first pick overall, and Burrow was the first pick overall. The only other time was six years ago in Super Bowl 50, and it was uh, Peyton Manning against Cam Newton. Uh, Peyton was playing for the Broncos at that time. So... Uh, there's a lot of interesting matchups. My heart is rooting for Joe Burrow, but my head tells me that the Rams just have too good of a team. I mean, the Rams have superstars on defense. Aaron Donald from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Penn Hills, actually. Uh, 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 Vaughn Miller, who's one of the best pass rushers. Uh, Jalen Ramsey, one of the best uh, uh, coverage guys. And on offense, they're just loaded with uh, Odell Beckham Jr. And uh, this uh, one receiver that they have named Cup, who is just something else. You really got to uh, uh, watch him. So my head tells me to pick the Rams because I think they're the better team. My heart tells me to pick the uh, 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 Bengals because I just have fallen in love with them joe burrow and i'm gonna go with my head
2: I, I i can't go cincinnati i just can't uh tyler boyd's from clareton he went to Pitt. um aaron donald as you mentioned went to penn hills which was my high school's biggest rival up there so even with that if like going for the guy from penn hills will win a, a super bowl title um i just can't yeah, cincinnati is just that's a bridge too far for me
0: <laughs> you've been listening to going deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep@bpr.org. at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.